This is Work From Anywhere, a Hayworth Connect podcast featuring conversations and stories about how and where work gets done. There's no denying that the way we work has changed in the last few years. This global experiment we've all been living has shown us that people can really work from anywhere, but it's also been a testament as to how much we really need the office. In this four-part series, we'll talk about what that means for the future of work and how the office has become a hub for collaboration, culture, connection, and attraction. Hi there. Welcome to Hayworth's Work From Anywhere podcast. I am John Scott. I'm a workplace design strategist with Hayworth, and I am joined today by Gail Nepel who is out of the San Francisco office of Gensler. And she is a sustainability and inclusive design strategist, which sounds a lot cooler than my, my title. So welcome, Gail. Happy to have you join us today. Thank you for having me. Really looking forward to this conversation. One of my favorite topics. Yes. Inclusive design. I thought maybe we could start off by sharing with our listeners your design career journey and really how you got started, but more importantly, what, what led you to become so intimately connected with inclusive design? Thank you for asking that. Yeah, that, that I think that all architects and, and designers, and I just want to say this up front, know more about inclusive design than they think they know. But for my own personal journey, I am an, an architect with 40 years of experience, primarily technical in all different areas, in interiors and in buildings, in places around the world, which is nice about, well, literally 29 years ago, I had a daughter who has intellectual disabilities. And as I watched her grow, I rapidly became aware that the profession that I love was not serving some of her needs. We have the ADA, but that just begins to scratch the surface for people with cognitive disabilities. So the further I got in my journey as an architect, I realized that we have opportunities to make places much better by removing barriers that we may not experience, but that other people are. And so I started working on bringing it into every project I did and then realized when I joined Gensler, which is a huge design firm, that we had both an opportunity and a responsibility to make a much broader impact. So I found like minded people at Gensler, and there are many in the world, people who care about designing inclusively. And we created an inclusive design network at Gensler. And then as that kind of got going, we created an inclusive design guide for our own internal designers. And that led to doing work with clients who are looking for ways to modify, update, upgrade their guidelines to incorporate inclusive design holistically. That's amazing. Wow. So what's the goal for inclusive design? And maybe how is it defined? If you go on the web, you'll find at least a dozen definitions for what inclusive design is. And there are some areas of it that are a little outside of the expertise of architects and interior designers. For example, user experience design or digital design, which are also, it's very important to do these inclusively. But for what we do for the physical space, and I'm a built environment gal. So the way that we define it at Gensler is that inclusive design makes spaces and places healthier, safer, and more convenient for everyone. And there is a little bit of a difference between inclusive design and just code and universal design. So for example, code primarily looks at accessibility and primarily at physical accessibility. And this is absolutely critical, but it only gets us partway there. 
people who are in a space that complies with ADA may often experience other challenges. One of the reasons we've had these conversations with Hayworth is that there are not the same kind of codes necessarily around furniture, but furniture has a huge part to play in whether a space is inclusive or not. And then universal design is usually seen as sort of the next step beyond accessibility, but it again is primarily focused on that physical access and often has this one-size-fits-all approach. Inclusive design goes that step to say, let's look at all the aspects of a human being, not just our physical size and shape, but also mobility, age, gender, you know, race, socioeconomic status, cognitive abilities or disabilities. And so inclusive design aims to capture all of those wonderful things that make up human beings and often requires us to design to those edges, which often means that we have to have a one-size-fits-one approach, which means either flexibility and or multiple choices for things so that we actually can provide an inclusive environment for everyone. I read recently an analogy from Matt May with Adobe that really hit home for me. And he said, inclusive design is the practice of going up the mountain, where we can always look for ways to include more people in situations to our designs, even if the result only gets us a few steps up the trail at a time. Whereas universal design starts to imply that that reaching the summit is the true goal. And that really drove it home is understanding how is inclusive design different than like, as you mentioned, universal designs. How do we design spaces that are inclusive when according to the World Health Organization, we have over a billion people living with disabilities worldwide? So I I think, again, this gets back to the idea that we all know more about this than we realize we know. And I will also say one of the wonderful things about inclusive design is that we never see people's eyes glaze over when we bring up the topic because everyone has a personal experience that they begin to go, oh, wait a minute, you know. So part of it is stepping back and tapping into what we know as designers and what we've experienced ourselves personally or watched other people experience And then to think about how can we make sure that everyone has that positive experience in a space. Sometimes it's easier to start with what didn't work and say, what was that barrier that we keep seeing happen? How many times have you said, oh, if only someone would do X around a piece of equipment or a piece of furniture or a space or an interior or a door. One of the things that we think of first is what are the things that always bubble up to create a barrier? And that's often how we actually start a conversation with our clients is to say, what are barriers that you have experienced? And then what are those bright spots that you would like to see us do again? And that is absolutely our favorite way to start designing inclusively. You've probably heard the ability communities phrase, nothing about us without us is for us. So from our point of view, we start with an inclusive process. And we do know that, you know, in the work that all of us do, our own teams are probably not going to have one of every kind of person who's going to be using the space on them. Our teams are just not that large. But that's an awesome opportunity to reach out to our clients and say, please, let's gather those people that represent all the variety of people who are going to be using this space. And let's have a conversation with them and let's keep them engaged as we design so that we do know that what we're designing is with them and for them, because otherwise it may not be inclusive. I love that. I love that phrase too. Hopefully we'll what, someday all of us will be speaking and using that as our guiding mantra or our guiding principle when it comes to good design. Why do you think today this 
idea around inclusive design is, is really taking on more meaning, more relevance now, more so than ever before. It seems like it's, it, it's always been there. And to your point, we, we probably know we're doing it to s some degree, but why do you think right now it's, it's really in the limelight? It's really, there's a high focus and, 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 uh, concern about doing it the right way. I think there are a number of things that have come together in the last few years that have really made this top of mind for more designers and certainly for more people. And a combination of, for example, the maybe empowerment isn't the right word, but the awareness that people who have experienced barriers have, that they have a right and an obligation to tell us what we're not doing right. And I think the you know, increasing voice of people who have been underserved or disenfranchised in all areas, you know, racially, ability, gender, all of these things, we've seen that come forward in you know, large parts of the world over the last few years, you know, really partly catapulted by you know, the murder of George Floyd in the summer of 2020, you know, that may have focused primarily on race, but that's an awareness, um, the Me Too movement, you know, those are awareness building that has helped other groups realize, you know, we need to, we need to make our voices heard if we're not, you know, if we're not being served in the way that we should be. And the pandemic has also created an amazing amount of empathy amongst many people. It's been really interesting in the conversations we've had with clients in work sessions where you know people who had to work remotely for various reasons suddenly were found that everyone understood now what their challenges and their benefits were in working remotely and many people who um, who have you know challenges in, in barriers in the physical environment had exactly the same experiences in the pandemic that everyone else did some of them found it much easier to work from home because they had a better setup for their particular needs you know, acoustically, ergonomically, and so on. Some of them found it was much worse because their works, work setting was much better equipped for them. And that kind of awareness that, wait a minute, we're all experiencing that has also built, been a great empathy builder. I'm glad you brought up the pandemic because that was something that I've been thinking about. Is there a negative impact on individuals with disabilities that are attempting to return back to the workplace? What exists now maybe that didn't maybe exist pre-pandemic? There are a couple of things that have been really amazing. They're sort of you know, hyper-specific, but they're meaningful. And they, they kind of are along the same lines as the idea of curb cuts, which actually were made common from the ADA. It's something that's thought of to benefit one group, but it actually benefits everybody. And touchless controls. The ability community has been asking for this forever for a number of reasons, not necessarily because of pathogen transmission, but because of ease of mobility. You know, if you can use a foot pedal to open a door instead of having to maneuver around with your walker or wheelchair or mind with your cane where the handle is, you know, that, that touch control is awesome or even automatic controls where there's an automatic sensor for a door to be opened. Same thing with um, all the fixtures and washrooms, you know, that's one less thing you have to worry about fussing with when you have a, any kind of mobility challenge. So those are things that I think people are finding are much better because of the pandemic. 
and the empathy around hybrid work and the empathy around the challenges of being in an office where either all of a sudden it's uh, hyper loud compared to what you were used to and people who theoretically have no challenges in their lives have gone back to an office setting and found themselves suddenly challenged with the fact that there are people all around them when for two years they were working alone in their office. And that's a challenge that many people with cognitive challenges or neurodivergent conditions have always found to be the case. And now everyone understands what they feel like. So the conversation is had. We have certainly um, been advocates of, all right, we're returning to office and we're finding that we need to do things differently. All of us realize the world has changed. And that gives us a wonderful opportunity to think of everyone when we go back to the office and the modifications that we make to serve all of us. You mentioned neurodiversity. I'm, I'm curious how that's connected in with inclusive design. Oh, absolutely. And of course, um, I am biased because my daughter having intellectual disabilities, you know, that's considered a neurodivergent condition. And that is something that traditional accessibility codes just really don't recognize, not because they don't care, but it's something that's a little more subtle, you know, and how do you design for this? And we are constantly learning ourselves. You know, we've been fortunate to do with, you know, one client, a deep dive into design, you know, research and design for neurodiversity. And we are now doing an internal research grant, you know, um, uh, exercise on design for neurodiversity. And the findings we've had so far are, um, uh, you know, we sort of found three key themes, which are design for clarity, design for choice, and then empathy, which is more of that sort of, you know, um, operational and HR and culture side of things that we cannot force through a physical design, but we can support through a physical design. And much of what we found in this particular research project that we did is that those things that serve people with neurodivergent conditions absolutely serve all of us. It's just we may not be as aware um, on a surface level because we are not as uh, sensorially tuned in to find things like the flickering of a decaying ballast on an LED fixture or um, an overly rough texture in a place where you're likely to be touching it with, you know, with fingers or something else that might be sensitive. So those things that it can be problematic for somebody with a neurodivergent condition are usually problematic for all of us, but we may not know why we have a headache or felt irritated or felt uncomfortable. So that was maybe not surprising, but reinforcing to learn from people with neurodivergent conditions. I love those those three key themes for inclusive spaces. So choice, clarity, and empathy that you mentioned, are those the, the metrics you use when you start working with organizations to understand how to design inclusive spaces. These are themes that we've identified relatively recently in this research project, which just wrapped in um, this last summer. So, you know, just a few months ago um, when we, and I love that you asked about metrics because there are a number of different sort of, you know, checklists and rating systems in the world. And what we've found is that none of them automatically apply to every client because every client is in a different place in their journey towards inclusive design and inclusive culture. So we actually have another research grant that we're doing internally, which is to bubble up the key performance indicators that really make a difference in measuring inclusive design. In the meantime, what we do with our clients is we go through with them and say, all right, what are the things that you're already doing? Let's just set those aside and say, you'll keep doing them. And now let's talk about the things 
things that will make the most positive difference to your employees and your guests or your customers. So we sort of customize them right now. Um, we do have a rubric that we use though, and this is you know total kudos to the Idea Center, the Inclusive Design and Environmental Access Center at the University of Buffalo. They sort of uh, clarified or codified about 15 years ago, eight primary goals for inclusive design. And so we usually look at those goals. We have strategies to achieve each of those goals um, in a space and in a place. And we usually use that to start framing the conversation, but it can change, you know, depending upon, again, upon the client. And an example of that, you know, some clients, for example, would say um, they already provide all gender restrooms everywhere. That's a huge step for some people, but for other people, it's already something they do. So we don't necessarily say, well, that's one of the metrics you have to aim for because you've already got it. Sure. Okay. Does that make sense? That makes does sense. That make it sense? does. It does. And I'm excited that you mentioned culture because that's something I'm, I'm quite passionate about. But how does company culture play a role in inclusive design? So do certain cultures, uh, I don't know, I, I guess I'm just, I'll start. I'll start with what what how does that play a role in in, uh, in helping to to uh, bring I guess more clarity to transparency to inclusive design. Oh, great question, and it's critical. In fact, essential. You know, we can we can design the most physically barrier-free, inclusive, supportive space in the world, but if a company has a toxic corporate culture, or an organization allows bullying, or a school you know uh, turns a blind eye on transgender students, then people will not feel included. So, you know, we we can set that baseline and it is important and in fact essential that you have as inclusive a space as possible, but you absolutely have to have that inclusive culture for for feel for people to feel they truly belong and can thrive. And, you know, that's something that again, we have a small group at at Gensler that is really doing some research into this, you know, how can we help our clients create a supportive culture for inclusion? I um, again, I'm built environment gal, I have great admiration for people who specialize in that sort of culture shift and change management, but it's not my expertise. I only know we need it. Absolutely. Right. right. You mentioned before about uh, furniture and and products and space being highly important. I'm wondering the three themes that you had mentioned before, do those apply to product development or are there other considerations that need to be made for those that interact with products uh, in, in our environments. Oh, I think they apply absolutely. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why, you know, we keep saying that, you know, furniture and equipment is key. I mean, we could build and design that shell, but often when you do construction, everyone looks at the fact that there's a, a significant hard cost there to change something. So that ability within furniture and products to provide people with choice and clarity is critical. For example, one of my favorite things that a client brought up to us a couple of years ago, and this is specifically about furniture, she said, you know, I am of a certain body size and every single meeting room in our building has the same size conference chairs in every meeting room and I don't fit in those chairs. I am tiny. They hit me in the wrong part of the leg and we understand they look great because they all match as they line up around the conference room table, but 
couldn't we maybe have two sizes or a couple of, and that was just such a light bulb to all of us that, oh my goodness, yes, you know, it's easier to do that kind of, to provide that kind of choice in furniture, which is more flexible. And we've seen it before in multiple sizes of chairs that you design for that are highly ergonomic, but they're made for different body sizes. Not to put any pressure on companies like Hayworth, but (laughs) this is something you have huge agency in. And so that's why we bring it up. Yeah. We have to strike a balance between the beautiful aesthetics, but also comfort. If, If something looks beautiful, but is not fun to sit in, it's distracting. It's stressful. It just doesn't work. You've got some really great blog posts on the Gensler website, and I encourage our listeners to go out and take a look. But if you could just summarize, what are some good resources for designers who are maybe wanting to implement inclusivity into their either physical spaces or maybe even digital design spaces? What would be some some good resources or tools that they could use to think more holistically around inclusive design? So before even getting to anything that you have to look up online or in a book, you know, I think just remembering that mantra, you know, nothing about us without us is for us, is basically reminds us to ask a question. If we don't have that experience, can we find someone who can give us some insights to whether this is going to create a barrier or not? In many firms, there are now people who have some inclusive design expertise on a general level. And so many of our clients have ability ERGs, employee resource groups, or other affinity groups within their employee organizations who have just been waiting to be asked. So I start with the people because, you know, we really feel that lived experience rules But then also beyond that, you know, we do love using the resources from the Idea Center at the University of Buffalo because they're constantly doing research. So they're a great resource. Excellent. I I just wanted to say uh, a huge thank you to you, Gail. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you for helping us to understand inclusive design. I've learned so much, but I'm hoping that our listeners have also Thank you, John. It's been a great conversation and great questions. Really appreciate it. And just let's end with that. Nothing about us without us is for us. Thanks for joining us for Work From Anywhere, a Hayworth Connect podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, follow us on Apple Podcasts or visit hayworth.com to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And be sure to rate and review the show to let us know what you think. For more workplace and design content, sign up on Hayworth.com to receive news and updates, visit Hayworth Connect webinars, read our blog articles, and check out our research. And of course, get inspired by our products and spaces.